We're in the book of 1 Corinthians together today, and so I want to invite you to turn there with me, please. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 together today. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. As you're turning there, maybe just uh, an encouraging word on uh, your children. I want you to know that we are of the same mind and understanding that it is a blessing and a privilege to have the children with us. We want to see our children, or we want to have our children see, I should say, what it looks like for God's people to come together and give him praise. We want to see them uh, here watching mom and dad, families, older people, younger people, devoting themselves to the word and worship together. This is good. And, but what this calls us to is also a bearing together with one another, doesn't it? And so I just want to remind you that um, we are all in this together, okay? We are a family, and families have young children at some point or another. And so, um, I don't hear it anymore. Uh, I'm, my, I'm numb to it. Not everyone is numb to the sound of children. Um, but when you hear the sound of a child, you should not hear, I wish I didn't hear that sound anymore. What you should hear is, what a blessing of God that we have young families among us. Amen. Right? So, let's look at our text. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You can tell by this passage this morning that uh, this is not an easy one, is it? This is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord is powerful among us. The Lord uses the preaching of his word to rally us around the word and to grow us in him and to conform us to his image. There is much for us to see in this text today, and I'm excited to be in this passage with you this morning. How we're going to start our time together is actually in the book of Leviticus, okay? So I would like for you, if you, if you would please... Just bookmark somehow. A lot of Bibles have, you know, one of these fancy little things. That's kind of what this is for. And so uh, I just want you to mark 1 Corinthians. We're going to come right back to it. Right back, meaning in just a few minutes here. We're going to come back in a few minutes to this. But I'd like to preface what we're going to look at together through the lens of uh, Leviticus, uh, specifically chapters 17 through 26, which is called the Holiness Code. That sounds real weird and like Dan Brownish kind of. It's not, I promise, okay? Um, it's just, it's, it's a section in Leviticus that talks about holiness and the laws and the civil codes regarding the holiness of the people of God, okay? And so it's called, in short, the Holiness Code, if you weren't aware of that. I want to narrow in and focus on chapter 18. So if you would turn to 18, chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I'm going to summarize verses 6 through 23, and then we're going to read verses 24 through 30. Okay? You'll see why. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. Look at it with me. This is kind of the introduction to this little section here. Okay? And the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is the Lord speaking, but yet recorded for us 
to see and hear. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Three times he said, I am the Lord. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, what's happening here in this particular text, as you can see, uh, the Lord is speaking to Moses and what was happening at this time in the history of Israel. Well, they had just come out of Egyptian captivity. You remember that Moses was raised in Egyptian royalty. And so God spoke to him out of a burning bush. You're going to deliver my people. The plagues on Egypt happened. The parting of the Red Sea happened. And now they're in the wilderness walking around. And the Lord then speaks to Moses. I will say, by the way, we believe all those events actually happened in real history. They're not make-believe stories. And when this happened, the Lord then spoke to Moses. And he said, listen, here in this covenant that we have with one another... There are things you need to know and things you need to live by. And the things you need to live by um, are not going to be like the places you came from. When you came from Egypt, they did Egyptian things and they had Egyptian standards and Egyptian morals and Egyptian customs. They had their own statutes and laws. Those are not my statutes and laws. You shall not live like them. Likewise, you're about to go into a land that I'm going to give you and that, that place is called Canaan. And when you go into Canaan, they are also going to have their own laws and statutes and customs and morals and practices. And you are not to live like them. You are not to live like the Egyptians. You are not to live like the Canaanites. You are to live like my people. Why? Because you are mine and I am the Lord. And so you are to be like me. And so he says, when you come into this land, you will keep my statutes and my rules and in this way, you shall have life. If you keep them, you will live by them. So this sounds good. And then enter in uh, lots of things here. If you're looking at Leviticus 18 and you continue on, what you see in the body of this section are a bunch of uh, sexual sins, okay? Specifically regarding close relatives, okay? So close relatives such as your mother, your father's wife, your sister, your son's daughter, your father's sister, your father's brother's wife, uh, your daughter-in-law, you get the idea. And so that's all these regulations about protecting holiness, being holy, and not having these sexual um, defilements with close relatives. That's what the body talks about, and it delineates it. It gives specifics on all these relationships that are improper, unholy, okay? And then when we get to uh, the close of that, I actually, I have verses 22 and 23 on the screen of that section, and a couple of words here that I want you to see. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. Why? Because it's an abomination. We'll talk about that word. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean by it. And neither shall a woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. Why? Because it is perversion. So three different words. Strange things, maybe, to our ears, right? But, unfortunately, you have to say all these things because this is the depth of human depravity. And so you think, well, I don't, I don't, we don't need to hear about that, please. No, you, we do need to hear about that, actually. We need to be careful. The people of Israel needed to hear about that too. We need to be careful to not practice these things. Okay, and so there's three words list listed here. Two of them are going to come up again specifically. The word abomination, it means, a, it means an offense to God, something that you have done to him to offend him because of your uncleanness, there is a separation and judgment of God coming, and so it's abominable, right? All that is kind of included in that idea. You have made an offense to God because of your uncleanness, and now there is a separation and judgment is coming on it. All that is kind of included in this word, abominable. It's an abomination to God. 
Is that pretty serious, does it sound like? It is serious, and we need to understand that it's serious. That's that word, unclean. It says, don't make yourself unclean. What is unclean, and why does that matter? Unclean means that a person is, maybe some synonyms are helpful, defiled, polluted, desecrated, contaminated. Contaminated with what? And why does it matter if we're contaminated or unclean? Because God is clean or unclean. God is clean. God is holy. This is why we were singing about God's holiness, to prepare us for what the word of God is saying to us. God is holy. He is nothing other than holy. He is perfect in his holiness. God is holy, and his people are to be holy. So his people are to be clean. His people are to not be unclean or defiled in any way. How about perversion? What does this word mean? Perversion is an interesting word because it means something like confusion. It's a confusion. It's something against nature or maybe a violation of nature. It's not right. It's flipped upside down. It's, it's, not, it's scattered. It's not a clear picture. It's not right. These things are a perversion, and we can see why we might call that a perversion, right? Yeah. Okay, so then, that's, that's kind of the introduction to this concept, and, and then there is this other section here um, that is talking about uh, all the different laws, but then there's the conclusion, and that's really, this is where I want to get to, okay? The conclusion is this, verses 24 through 30, and I'm going to answer some bigger questions because you might wonder, why are we reading out of the book of Leviticus this morning if we're studying 1 Corinthians What's going on here? Oh, we're going to get to that. Just, just a second. Let's read this. Look in your Bible at verses 24 through 30. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. For by all these things, the nation I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land where you were going did all of these abominations, and the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out. This doesn't sound good, right? Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who... Uh, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that they practice before you. Never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord. So a big question here is, okay, you're, you're reading a really, really old document here to a very specific people in a very specific place uh, what bearing does this have on us? Because we are not, if you didn't know, national ethnic Israel. Okay, so what does all this have to do with us? Those were laws and customs given to a specific people at a specific time. Um, and that that's, doesn't apply to us anymore, or, or does it? Do we cut someone off if they practice these things? Well, you just made the connection, right? but we don't cut them off in the same way that they did. Why not? Interesting concept here. Let's talk about it just a minute. Um, but the first thing I want to say is this, and I have this on the screen because I want you to see it. I want you to hear it. This is very plain and clear in the text that we just read. There is a universal accountability for all people at all times in all places. And God will judge those who have become unclean through abominable practices. And how we know that this is universal here and not just to national ethnic Israel is because he said, the land that you're going, they did all these abominations and the land vomited them out. They were judged for it. And they were not national ethnic Israel. They were held accountable to these standards, although they were not Israel. It's universal. So, there is a just, just punishment, yes, for nations, even whole nations that engage in these activities. 
What do we think about that? That we should not be surprised to see God's judgment on nations who give themselves to abominable sexual practices. And actually, we should be expecting God's judgment. Do you agree or disagree? Based on what was just said here. It's a list of abominable sexual practices that nations are giving themselves to and nations that aren't even Israel, God is saying, I judge that nation by vomiting them out of their land. I brought judgment on them. And so when we, as a collective people, give ourselves to abominable sexual practices, God then gives them over to judgment. And this is exactly what Romans 1 is talking about. And I think we talked about this maybe last week, Romans 1. That is, when the people suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they don't give honor to God, they don't give thanks to him, God gives the people over to what they want. He gives them over to what they want in judgment, and things get much worse. Have we noticed that things are rapidly getting worse? It is the judgment of God. It's, it's on display for us in many places in our, in our scriptures. But this is what's happening. God gives them over to the lust of their hearts. God gives them over to dishonorable passions. God gives them over to a debased mind. And wouldn't you know it, that at the depth of all of this, at what you see on display is what? What you see are the sexual perversions and abominations on display. And that's exactly what's happening. So, this is a biblical concept and principle that we need to solidify in our minds to understand the world around us. This is what's happening around us. This is the judgment of God on a nation. And you might say, well, how can God judge a whole nation? He's done it before. Right? A whole collective group of people. He's done it before. Right? Do you remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? These things happen, not always in those terms, right? Uh, I don't know that we should expect fire from heaven, but, I mean, he's done it before. He, and he has not changed, honestly. Or is God not sovereign over natural disasters? I would hope that the people in this room would say, well, I mean, I can't deny you there, right? God is sovereign over all things. All things. So, just go back and read Romans 1. I was going to draw it a little bit more right there. I, th I think we understand. So the question here is, how do we understand these things today? That's a big question. How do we understand these things today? Here's my summary, and it's a concept for biblical interpretation, ultimately. While the specific civil laws of national ethnic Israel are not binding on those in the New Covenant, that is true, the universal truths remain, and the moral principles still apply. We are not national ethnic Israel. Those civil laws do not apply to us, but it doesn't mean that there's not truth there, and it doesn't mean that there are no moral principles there. And so uh, we need to kind of talk about what that looks like a little bit. All right? Civil law. I'm going to uh, uh, go back to that one. So there, there are three things here that I said that we're going to talk about. There are specific civil laws that are no longer binding on us, and you're going to see why, and you're actually going to be very thankful for that, okay? Um, but there are universal truths, and there are moral principles that still apply today, and in fact, this is exactly what Paul is doing with the people in Corinth, which is why we needed this as our base to move forward. So I will show you that this, what you see on the screen here in my summary, is exactly how Paul understands it, and it's what he's putting into practice. I will show that to you in just a moment. But these three concepts, civil law, first, let's look at that. There are civil laws. What are, what are the civil laws? Well, if we could summarize what we just read here, that the people who commit sexual immorality are unclean, and they are to be cut off from the people of God and or put to death. That was uh, many times the punishment. Put them to death. And in that way, they can no longer infect the community. Okay? That's, that's the civil law. 
But there's a universal truth here, and what is that universal truth? That sexual immorality is sin against God, and he will hold all people from all nations accountable for their sin. That's the universal, big scope truth of the circumstance here that we found, that we find. But there is also moral principle that we apply. And the moral principle here is this, is that the people of God are not to defile themselves with acts of sexual immorality, acts which have been defined by God himself. It doesn't mean that the civil law still applies, but it does mean there's a universal truth and that there are moral principles to be derived from this idea. Do you all see what I'm saying here? This is very important to understand because if we just take the law at face value, then the guy who did this needs to die. And if you do it, then you need to die. And who's going to do the killing? We would have to do it. Is that what we do? That's not what we do. So should we have maybe a hermeneutic that allows us to interpret these things properly and consistently? Yes, we should. And this is how we go about this. So we, we ask questions. Um, like, how does this reality play itself out for the new covenant, specifically for the people of Corinth who have sinned in this very specific way? Right? So, go back then to 1 Corinthians. How does the Apostle Paul approach the people within the church who have sinned in very specific ways that the holiness code and the civil laws give detailed instruction about how to handle that? Does Paul say, you all are not familiar with Leviticus. Many of you are Gentiles and not Jews, so let me just explain it to you. And maybe he will read for them Leviticus chapter 20, verse 11. It says, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put to death. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. It's reported to me that there's sexual immorality among you, a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. A man has his father's wife. Paul does not say, so kill them both. Why? That's interesting. We should ask questions like that because it leads us to, like I said, a hermeneutic. That is a way of understanding the text. And when you have a hermeneutic, it needs to be a consistent hermeneutic to understand how do, how do we understand, how do we apply, right? Because our understanding of a thing leads us to the application of our thing, right? And do we want to get the application of this thing wrong? I'm reading, uh, you say, well, someone does this within FRC and one of you is reading in, in Leviticus 20 and you said, I know what to do. It says it right here in the Bible. It says what to do in our Bible. Kill them both. And we might say, well, I mean, the Bible says it. Let's all get our stones. Take them outside. Have our way with them. Unfortunately for national ethnic Israel, this is what they would do. That's what they were commanded to do. Now, how does Paul handle it? He says... First of all, you are arrogant. You are arrogant. He's basically saying, you are proud. This thing hasn't phased you. Why not? And Actually, I was thinking about it, and many of you might be thinking right now in this moment, listen, this is about sexual immorality, a guy taking his father's wife, which is that not his mother? No, it's not his mother. So that gives you insight into how things were going down at that time, right? So it's not his mother, and yet he has his father's wife. And so, okay, I'm in no danger of committing this sin. Can we move on from this already? Right? That, that could be a way that we approach a text like this. I'm not going to do that. So uh, let's, can we move on to something maybe, with, you know, that makes me feel better? I don't know. This, this isn't making me feel great. Let's, but how do we handle this? 
I was considering that, and I think that we maybe need to press in here because um, we need to recognize that while there are external realities at play, really the, the big issue is actually what's happening internally with the people. And I think that you are tempted to have this same internal thing happening to you, even though it might display itself externally in a different way. So I might, I might summarize that by saying, while the external acts of sexual sin are farther reaching in their defilement and depravity, that's, that's true, the internal acts of the heart are still sexual sin in the eyes of God. So how do we know that's true? Matthew, I, let me, I'll just read these. They're, they're very short. Words from Jesus here, he says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And some of them would say, fine, I've never done that. Next. And Jesus says, well, you don't understand the fullness of this because it's actually a matter of the heart. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. So you're saying that if I look at a woman with lust, it is adultery. Yes, well, that just took this thing to a whole nother level. Because it's not just the external act. Although, is that bad? And is that actually more depraved than simply the internal matter of the heart? But it's no less sinful in the eyes of God, right? It is no less sinful. But there is a distinction between having something in your heart and actually committing the act externally. There is a distinction between those two. But the root of both of them is certainly sin. You have committed adultery, whether you do it in your heart or you do it in external reality, right? Both are adultery. One of them has farther reaching effects than the other. And I hope you can understand just practically how that would be. Matthew 15, 19 for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Where do all these things come from? They come from your heart. All these things proceed from the heart. We have a heart issue here. So there are lots of things going on. For this guy in particular, there was a heart issue, and the way it surfaced itself was in this particular sexual act. Is anyone in this room so safe and guarded and protected and so mature and holy that you are not tempted to some kind of sexual immorality in your heart? None of, that's not true of any of us. The temptation is there. And thank God that he addresses this in his word. So, does this apply? Not only does it apply in that way, it also applies because the whole church is involved in what's about to happen to this guy. The whole church gets involved here. It says, this is a kind of sexual immorality that the pagans don't even practice. The pagans. And that's kind of an interpretive decision, really, to use the word pagans because it's just ethnos. I mean, it's just nations. It's just Gentiles is all that's being said here. But so pagans, Gentiles, what's, what, what the, really the point though is it's people who do not know God. The word pagan, by the way, is an interesting word. It, it comes from uh, another word, of course, in another language that means country dweller. It means the people who live out in the rural parts. Okay. <laughs> But it's really, it's associated with the people who don't live in the city and don't have the major religions of the world, but they live out in the country and they kind of have their own religions, pagans, right? That's, that's what that means. So pagan is actually more of a positive association term, what they do, whereas Gentile is more of a negative association, what they do not do. So I, I actually think Gentiles is more appropriate here, but it doesn't really matter. The idea is the same. The people who do not know God. That's the point. The people who don't know God don't do these things. So if I would maybe say it in my own way, what Paul's saying here would be this. You who know God are doing something that even those who do not know God don't do. And you're proud of it. That's what he says. You're arrogant. You're proud. Ought you not rather to mourn? That's what it says. 
ought you not rather to mourn? There was a big heart issue, not for the guy who did it only, but for the whole church, there was a heart problem. They didn't take this as seriously as they should. And that, I believe, is a big thing, a big issue in many churches today that we should be aware of and flee from, that we don't take sin seriously enough. You're proud of it. Or you just overlook it completely. It's not that serious. No, I think it is serious. Now, there's, there's another extreme here that we should be just as terrified of, and that is legalism that says that every sin is very serious, as serious as it possibly could be, and so everyone who sins in any way needs to be punished to the full extent of the law. Every time. And there's obviously danger in that too, right? Because that's not what the scriptures say. Go back to what we talked about last week and how Paul has been addressing this sinful church so far. Right? Didn't he come with them with a fatherly rebuke in gentleness, pleading with them that he wouldn't have to later on bring the rod? How much later on? You know? What's the time limit? What, what time limit did Paul give on repentance here? And you have three days. It's like a ransom situation, right? There's no time limit given. So for us to put a time limit on then, what does that say of us? So you understand that we should be careful of creating limitations that the scriptures itself does not create. But both extremes should be avoided. Understand what I'm saying? You're proud of it. So one thing we can know for sure is that this is a public sin. Can you all get that by reading this? It's reported to me, a report came to me, that there is sexual immorality among you such that even the pagans don't practice this thing. And the sin is that a man has his father's wife and you all are boastful in it. You're proud of it. Now, he says, it shouldn't be that way, but let's talk about the guy for a moment. What do we do with the guy? Well, what does it say? Let him who has done this thing, read it in your own Bible. Yes, this is in the Bible and the New Testament. Let him be removed from among you. This is church discipline, which is discipline of the Lord brought on by means of the church, which is why it's called church discipline, is biblical, and to not practice it is to not come up to the standard of a biblical church. You hear what I'm saying? This is not the way you grow a church in, in, uh, in, in many people's terms, right? This is not a church growth tactic. But that's not our concern because we don't grow the church anyway, right? God does. And this is not our church. This is God's church. And if it is God's church, we're going to operate under God's terms, right? And what does God say to do at times? There comes a time, there may come a time when someone sins to such an extent, and we'll talk about what extent might mean, but there comes a time when a person may have to be removed from among the congregation. Two brief questions for you as we work through this together. Number one, how can a person be removed from a church if they don't first belong to a church? Answer me that. Second, how can a person be subject to the authority of the church if there is not first an acknowledgement of authority? What does this point to? Church membership is exactly right. If you are here, and there's some of you, so thankful that you're here. If you do not have a church that you call your own and you bring yourself in alignment to the beliefs of that church and you submit yourself to the elders of that church and the, the discipline of the church, then you are outside what the Lord would have for you. Church membership, although that is the phrase we put on it, is not unbiblical. It is very, very biblical. So if you have questions about 
why should I join a church? What does it look like to join a church? We have purchased some booklets called Why Should I Join a Church? And they're right out here, right through the red doors to the left. And I want, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you. Take one of those and read it. It is our position, although not written by us. It is our position. If you have nothing in your way and you say, well, I just don't because I don't see it in the scriptures, you're wrong about that. And I'll argue my case with you if you would like to get into that conversation in a gentle way. I speak with seriousness, but I'm not mad at you, okay? I, I just, I believe that this is a very serious thing. If you don't belong to a church, you cannot be part of what's about to happen here. And so what that tells us is by logic, you're outside of what the Lord would have for you. Join a church. If it's not this one, go find one. However, I would say to you, make sure it's a biblical church with biblical church government, with a plurality of elders operating within that church that holds to biblical doctrine. Verses three through five. Paul says, for though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. Now, just pause. This is not mystical language, okay? Do you understand if I were to say, well, I wasn't with you on Wednesday, but I was with you in spirit. Do you know what I mean by that? Do we have to mysticize this thing or like go take real pains to figure out what does that mean? We know what that means. Can we just move on from that and understand what he means by that? It doesn't mean anything mystical, I promise. He's just saying, listen, I'm, I'm there with you. You have my heart, you have my mind. I'm there with you. We are like-minded in this thing. I'm right there. I'm not, I'm not present within my body, but I definitely am in my spirit. So as if I were present, which means being present is important. I have already pronounced judgment on the, on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, that is, you are taking what I've said to you and you're enacting it, that you're making a recognition of the fact that I'm here among you and that I have a part to play within you. Now, he can say that because he's from a distance, but how can someone be engaged in this and have authority over this if they are not even here? You have to remember that Paul is something that we are not. And what is that that he is that, he is, that we are not? An apostle. So make a category distinction, okay? He's an apostle. You are not. I am not. There's none living, I promise. So when you are assembled, are we assembled today in the name of the Lord Jesus? Is Paul's spirit among us? All they had was this letter. We have this letter. Is Paul's spirit here among us? Yes, if we are doing what he has said to do. Do you understand that? We have Paul's heart. We have Paul's thoughts. And as we have Paul's heart and Paul's thoughts as recorded in scripture, whose heart and thoughts do we have? God's. So is Paul's spirit here among us within this? Or are we going to deny what Paul said? No, we are going to have Paul's spirit here among us. Are we not? Or do we want to reject the whole church discipline idea? Do we want to embrace church discipline or reject it? And you're not very excited about it. <laughs> or should you be? Does God have a plan for church discipline? And is it a good plan? So to deny it then is a bad plan. Okay. so much to say about this. Am I going to make it? I mean, we're having lunch, right? So, I mean, where are you, where are you going? We're, we'll make it through verse 5, okay? By the way, if you're not, if you don't have plans to stay, I, I want to encourage you to stay. Please, even if you didn't bring food, there's food for you. Even if you can't eat because you have dietary restrictions, I've been there myself, at least stay a little bit and, and, uh, postpone your lunch so that you can have some good fellowship with other believers who are like-minded with you and can encourage you and pray for you. Get to know their children. Okay, 
Paul gives a very clear directive to the church, doesn't he? And the directive is, deliver this man to Satan. That is so powerful and extreme and outrageous. Deliver him to Satan. I was talking with the elders right, right before here. And I was kind of, I always kind of go over what, what sermon's over and things like that. And I, can you just envision a scenario where we, we bring up someone, Dwayne Bunch, please come forward, right? And like, we are about to deliver you to Satan, just so you know. And man, as soon as we say the words, just prepare yourself because this is the power that we have given from God. And so once we say it, we haven't said it yet, so you're not delivered to Satan yet, don't worry. Um, but as soon as we say it, prepare yourself because Satan is about to destroy your flesh. In fact, God has authorized us be to become executioners. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Is, is that not what your Bible says? What do we expect to happen to this man? That Satan's going to kill him. Or is that what it means? It says flesh and destruction. When flesh is destroyed, I think that means they die. Is that not a natural way to understand that? I'm going to ultimately somewhat disagree with that so you know, but I don't disagree with that entirely. What's going on here? So you have a church that has gathered and they as the collective church, when you are assembled, you collectively, you all are to deliver this man. Does one person of the church do this? No. Is it the job of a committee to do this? No, it is the job of the whole church. Do you belong to this church? Have you submitted yourself to the leadership of this church? And have you agreed to enter into church discipline with others and to kind of sign up for church discipline to come on you if necessary? This is what church membership is. And it is for your good. It is not for your evil. It's not for bad to come upon you. It is for your good. It is for your good. Okay, so ultimately what's being said here, uh, Paul has all the information he needs, doesn't he? Because he says, I've already pronounced judgment. Now, do you think that Paul flippantly enters into judgment about such a thing? He's like, listen, I, a report came to me. It was probably just gossip. I don't know. Um, but... I don't know, just hand him over to Satan so he can kill him already and we'll move on. Do you, is that right? I think not. I think that Paul has all the information that he needs. I think that it is public, verifiable, unrepentant sin, and he knows that to be true. And if he didn't know that to be true, he would not take this to such extreme measures. Do you all agree with me? I hope that you would, knowing what we know of Paul and knowing that this is the word of God. Right? So, there is another place where this terminology is used. You should make note of it. It's in 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. Um, there are some guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and Paul handed them over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. I'm going to hand you over to Satan, and Satan's going to teach you the dangers of blaspheming. What in the world does that look like? What does it look like for a church to deliver someone over to Satan? Now, I think of this in these terms. Right now, it, have you ever done or do your kids do the connect the dots things? And you can be honest and say that sometimes you do them too because they're just fun. And you do them, and you're like, oh, you can't do it, let me take over. You know, and like you're doing it. Plus the ones that have like 900 dots, you know, and they're real itty bitty. You ever done one? Like an adult connect the dots? Anyway. Uh, kind of what maybe I see here so far is a connect the dots that have not yet been connected and so you don't quite see the picture clearly. What I would like to do with six points is maybe connect all these dots so that we can see a picture emerge. Okay? Now, I'm going to summarize something that next week and the week after is going to be brought into more and more focus. So these don't stand alone, but I do want to give the picture so that we can fit what we're talking about into this picture, okay? So 
Six things about what this looks like to hand someone over to Satan. Number one, God has established a standard of conduct to which all believers must conform. Do we agree with that? Has God established a standard? And does he expect all believers to conform to that standard? Are all Christians going to conform to that standard perfectly? Will any of them? No. You never will. Okay, number two. Believers are to live in a community where these standards are taught, exemplified, and expected. Do you agree with that? Now, do we teach them, exemplify them, and expect them perfectly? No, and the news here is, and we never will. We are an imperfect group of people with a perfect God who has grace on us. But we, with everything in us, are pursuing what we believe to be correct according to God's standards. And sometimes we're going to make mistakes and we need to say, hey, listen, that, that was a mistake. Let's back up. Can you have grace on me? And I, can I have grace on you? Lest we think that the standard is perfection, and if you don't reach perfection, while I have, um, I'm going to hold you as accountable as I can. You messed up. Hey, let's take this thing all the way to the end. Or are we going to have grace? Are we going to bear each other's burdens? Are we going to be gentle and love one another? Speaking the truth of Christ in love? Are we going to do that? But then, should it come, and this is, we don't, do we want this end? Do we want the delivering of someone over to Satan? Is that our goal? Let's just get them down that road as fast as possible because I have set limitations and timelines and they have not met the limitations and timelines, so let's get them out of here. Is that the goal? Do we want to move as fast as we can? The goal is also not to move as slow as you can, but at the same time, you want to move through these ideas reasonably. And the, 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 the reason we have to say reasonably is because the specific details are not given to us. We just don't, however much we might want the specifics, we don't have them. And so, by the grace of God, and by all of us bearing together with one another in grace, we walk through these things appropriately. Okay, so number three. That community of believers is then responsible for holding one another accountable to what standards? The standards that you've come up with? Or the standards of God? The standards of God. Some of the standards of God even include what? Church discipline. Right? Number four, when verifiable sin is evident in someone of the community, this sin should not be ignored. Do you agree? Um, now, what do we mean by verifiable sin? Was this verifiable sin going on here in this situation? Are there some sins that are not verifiable because you suspect what's going on? I suspect a heart issue here. And being one who can read people's hearts, I believe that they have sinned and we need to go ahead and have church discipline on them. We're getting a real sticky place here. Who verified this sin of their heart? You can't see their heart. God sees the heart. All we can see is what we can see. Wouldn't you, I mean, that's pretty basic, isn't it? All we can see is what we can see. That's true. Let's not pretend that we can see something that we can't. And in other words, what we're doing there is we're judging motives and intentions. And you cannot judge someone's motives or intentions unless they specifically tell you, this was my motive or intention. But even then, they might not actually truly understand what their motives and intentions were. I don't know. Do you always know what your motives and intentions are? Think about that with me. Do you always know what your motives and intentions are? No, you don't. So you understand here why this... We need to be careful here. Not be too quick, but don't be too slow. And what does that look like? We also need to be careful about defining what that looks like. Right? It's, it's hard. And we need the wisdom and grace of God and the mercy of God. And we need the grace from one another to walk through these things, don't you? Don't you think? Okay, number five. When this sin is biblically confronted, what does biblically confronted mean? 
Sam is preaching next week out of Matthew 18, and he is going to walk us through uh, basically that concept right there. What about biblically confronted, in a sense, means, okay? And there is no evidence of remorse or repentance. This person is to be further disciplined by the community with what? Expulsion. Is that not what our text just said? If this person does not repent, if this person will not come to terms with their very, very clearly verifiable sin, was this a very clearly verifiable sin? The man has his father's wife. Was that verifiable? The community said, yeah, that's going on. What, what of it? It was verifiable. It was public. And there was no remorse. They were proud of it. Now, the whole community was sinning, but Paul didn't kick the whole community out of the church. He told them they were infants in Christ. They were sinning, but they weren't all expelled. But this one guy was. So you see here that it is a graded situation. It must be. Every little sin does not require that someone be kicked out of the church. Otherwise, there would be no church. Right? If you think you would be the last man standing, you're probably the first one to be gone. Serious stuff here. Hand him over to Satan. In order that, what? In order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? I got it. The church gets together. Dwayne Bunch comes up front. We say you're handed over to Satan. He he's going to kill you. But the good news is, when you die, because Satan killed you, your soul will be saved. And unless Satan kills you, you, your soul will not be saved. So we just need Satan to kill you so that your soul can be saved on the day of the Lord. It's as simple as that. I don't know why you disagree. I don't know why you have such a hard time with that. Let, let us let Satan kill you. Don't you want your soul to be saved? I say that in such a way to say that if you take this as literal as you possibly can, without thinking it through you know that that's not correct, right? You know that that's not correct. So then what is correct? When a person is plucked, and we could, we could kind of reference that because really all the church is doing is submitting to God's authority. God is actually the one kicking them out of the church. We're just being obedient in the matter, right? You do see that, right? So when a person is plucked from the church, he must now operate within the realm of the unbelieving world where Satan is said to rule as the God of this world. And you do know that scripture references Satan as the ruler of the world, right? Do we understand what that means in a, in a, in a better context, right? In a fully biblical context, what does it mean that Satan is the ruler of this world? That he is sovereign over this world? No. Is he the ruler of Christ's church? No. So in what way is he the ruler? Well, he is only ruling. He is ruling in that unbelieving realm. In the realm of darkness, he rules because God has given him that rule. And one day he will not have that rule. And one day darkness will be no more. But as it is, there is a world of darkness out there. And that world of darkness is where the church is not gathered. Where the church gathers, there is light. We are that city on a hill. And it shines. We are light in the midst of darkness. And you are part of that light. And a light out by itself somewhere is a dim light. But when it gathers with other light, the darkness does not overwhelm it. But if you are out there as a single light in this world, you're, you're going to be overwhelmed. You need to be around the light of the gospel, which is in the community of believers. This has so much to do with the nature of the church here. Now of this, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. We've referenced this already, right? So, what does it mean then when we hand someone over to Satan, what happens to this person? Should we expect that they would soon die? What would happen if this man was not delivered over to Satan? What would happen? He would continue to live? I, what's going to happen here? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? 
so I think there's a couple of options here we have, and, and uh, I could be technical here, and if you want some of that, I'd be more than happy to talk with you about that. I had it prepared, but, I mean, the time is flying by. All right? Ultimately, I will say this. Paul goes to great lengths to make a distinction between two concepts, and that is the flesh and the spirit. Wouldn't you agree? He talks about the flesh and the spirit. And what is the flesh? What is the domain of the flesh? That is where sin resides, is it not? And what is the domain of the spirit? That is where holiness and righteousness reside, right? When we understand the different ways that church discipline is talked about, what is the end goal? That the person die or that the person come to repentance and be restored in the community? What is the end goal? That the person would repent and be restored to the community. That is the end goal. That church discipline, discipline someone that they might learn from it, repent, and then be restored to the community with joy. With joy. Because the person is now further sanctified. And how were they sanctified? Well, unfortunately, he had to be plucked out of the believing world and his community and put out there in the world of darkness and that he might be overcome with the darkness of the world, cut off from his believing community. That misery and suffering and torment would overwhelm him and overwhelm him to such degree that he can do nothing but fall on his face and repent of his sin. Churches that do not know of this do not know the extent of God's holiness. God is holy and his church is to be holy. What are you going to do the day when it possibly comes that your spouse is under church discipline? Well, you'll leave the church, of course, and go to a different one. can't treat me like that. I'll leave that for you to contemplate. So I think we have two options here. I think both with the same application. I'll bring this to a close. I think we have two options here as far as interpretation is, is concerned. Number one, this man is a believer. And God intends for him to be publicly shamed by the church as the entire community condemns his behavior. Why? Because there's a standard, isn't there? And we are not okay with someone willfully, continually being against God's standards correct? And so such shaming and discipline will bring what is fleshly in him to ruin. Not excluding the possibility that God will also use physical sufferings and if necessary, death to get this person to that point. Isn't that what it says in 1 Corinthians 11? Have we not read that before? Like, like basically every time we take the Lord's Supper, this is why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. If God chooses to discipline a person through physical means, he will do it. Is it possible that God has taken someone off the face of this planet because they were in willful rebellion as a believer? Yes. Does it mean that every time someone dies in an untimely way, it's because they were in willful rebellion? No. It doesn't. Does it mean that every time you're sick, it's because you're in sin? No. However, does sometimes God send sickness because you are in sin? Yes. Do you know the answer to that cut and dry? You do not. However, we can't limit what God says he can and will do. We all on the same page with that? Option two, this man is not a believer. And God intends to rid him from the church. Because the church, after all, is what? The church is what? Huh? Uh, us. Who's us? We are, we, it, it is believers. The church is not a place, it's a people. And what people? God's people. What people are God's people? God's people who have been redeemed through the person and work of Jesus Christ by faith and by faith alone. 
So what if there's a believer here in your midst? Actually, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I heard that there are divisions among you, and in fact, there must be divisions among you because those who are genuine among you and those who are not genuine among you, it should come up because you're not gonna be on the same page with everything. So if this person is not a believer, the entire church comes against him and condemns his behavior and they prove to be a witness to the purity of God's church as a public witness to the purity of God's church. When the church practices church discipline, it is a public statement that Christ's church is to be a pure bride for him. And to deny it is to deny this reality. So this man is handed over to Satan to do with him as he wishes. Underneath the sovereignty of God. So I will end here uh, by saying this. God demands, not only demands, but also produces a purified church. He not only demands it, he himself produces it. Lots of texts to look at. I want to look at them all. I I think maybe we'll just look at one, okay? Make reference to the others. So let's, let's maybe end our time together in 1 Thessalonians 4. Would you please turn there with me in your Bible? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's just read verses 1 through 8, maybe with just some final reflections on the holiness of God, the purity of his church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. It says, this is also Paul writing, okay? Same guy who wrote 1 Corinthians. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. It never comes to an end, does it? You've never arrived. It always, more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? In all situations, at all times, in all places, what is the will of God for you? It is right, it's right here. Your sanctification is the will of God. That you abstain, oh, look at what's mentioned first, from sexual immorality. Are you tempted to sexual immorality? Is it possible for you to be tempted to sexual immorality? Yes. And to deny that you could be tempted is to be right where Satan would have you be. You are not prepared. that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. That word body is actually the word vessel, that you know how to control this thing. It's yours. You're moving it. And how do you control it? In holiness and honor. Not in the passion of the, fl- of the lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We've looked at that, haven't we? As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, does the church need to be warned? God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God is the one who demands that his church be holy and God is the one who then produces it. And how does he produce it? By sanctifying his people. He does this by two means. One, oh man, we're, we're too late in the day for these kind of words, but there's primary causation and secondary causation. I mean, that's just a reality of it. I don't know other terms for it. There is a primary way that God acts without people. There's a secondary way that God acts through secondary means. God may do a thing without humans. God may do a thing with humans involved. Either way, God does it. So when discipline is given to someone of the church, it's God doing it, however he's using a secondary means. When God says, today's your last day, you willful, rebellious sinner, but beloved in Christ, today's your last day on the planet, he does that through primary means. He doesn't need anybody to help him. 
Ananias and Sapphira, for example. Okay? Not only on the believing, in, uh, God has his, his own way with the unbelieving world, such as vomiting nations out from their land. Right? I hope you hear me today, and more importantly, I hope you hear what the Word of God has to say on this matter today. And we're going to continue talking about these ideas of church discipline and sexual immorality because that's, that's what the text has for us, isn't it? And that's what the text has for us, and that's what we focus on. And as we do, we continue to store up more and more of the full counsel of God on our path, don't we? We need the Word of God because God is a standard. Here's how I want to end our time together today. I know it's late. Um, this is how I want to end. I want us to all read this passage on the screen together. Okay? That's why I have it nice and big. Okay? No excuses. You can read it. All right? You can look in your own Bible if you like to. Okay? I would like for us all to read this together. I'm going to read it first. Okay? You can kind of hear my cadence with it. And then we will all read it together. You understand why I want to? You understand how this would be helpful for us? Let's see what it says. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's all stand and read this together. Do we believe this to be true? Has God called us to impurity? No. Has God called us in holiness? Yes. And if anyone disregards this, does he disregard us? No. He disregards God. Do we understand? Let's read this together. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for a group of people, your church, gathered here in this place today that takes your word seriously. We believe what you have said. And we want to be a people who conform our lives and our corporate conduct around what you have said. And we ask for your mercy and your grace, your wisdom with us as we navigate very difficult issues. Help us. Give us power, strength, wisdom, and insight. I pray that you would also give us grace with one another as we all wrestle with these things together to know what is the appropriate thing to do, understanding that not all things are as clear as we would like them to be. God, give us help and purify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.